Jesus, I am so excited today. It's like I woke up and thought, today is the day to get working for Jesus. Kat, I am so excited to find someone who's ready to take action and get things done. Oh, man, I am that girl. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I've got something perfect for you, so oh. let's get started. Okay. <sighs> what are you doing? Uh, stand up. Remember, we were going to take action. Yeah, but this is where I always sit. Right, but I need more than this. Oh, I know what you're getting at. Okay, Jesus, how much do you want? What? $50? Is that enough? Oh, uh, that's not what I meant. Oh, uh, all right. Well, 100 then, you know. I mean, you drive a hard bargain. <laughs> um, okay, but um, you might not want to cash this till next Friday. You know what I'm saying? Right. There you go. <laughs> okay, okay, Kat, really, I, I do think it's great that you want to give, but I want you to mentor a younger woman. Right. Well, Jesus, you know, I'm not really into, like, teaching people and stuff. I mean, I'm not, I don't really get into that. Okay. Um, okay, you, you know that woman at the office, Amy? Yeah. I want you to take her out to lunch. Tell her about me. Um, well, Amy is different. I mean, like, really different, you know? I know, but she needs to know about me. Mm, and I can tell the people at the church to call her. I mean, they get paid to do things like that. I want you to do that. Jesus, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. No, Kat, the problem is you're too comfortable. I think this video captures really well what we've been talking about here at Freedens over the last few weeks. How Jesus calls us not just to sit there and to, to try to be as comfortable as we possibly can, but instead to get up and to take a step of faith and to really seek to make a difference in the kingdom of God. But I know that for all of us there is this persistent pull to just wanting to pursue this, this personal comfort and this personal satisfaction and this per, sense of personal success and gain. And we end up diluting the, the impact that we could really have on the kingdom of God. Now this morning I want to make you two promises that I think come both from Scripture and from experience. And the first promise is this. That if you would commit yourself to seeking to intentionally build up the kingdom of God, you will be a tremendous adventure in which you will be growing closer to Christ and in which we have the opportunity to make a deep impact in, the, in eternity, something that's much larger than just yourself. That's what would happen if you seek to really invest your life in building up the kingdom of God. There's a second promise I would make you as well that comes from both Scripture and from experience. That if you invest your life fully in seeking to build up the kingdom of God, it will not be easy. It won't be easy. There will be times of heartache, in times of discouragement, there will be times where people will question you or will they, where they will directly oppose what you are seeking to do. It will be a great adventure in which you can impact eternity, but it will not be easy. Now this morning you may have already uh, seen in the bulletin what the title of this morning's message is. The title is Opposition and Discouragement. And maybe when you saw that title you felt like, oh great. I wanted something kind of uplifting, and that doesn't sound much fun at all. I, I want something that's kind of going to fuel me up for my week. Well, I'll make you a deal. If you are a person 
who has never experienced any trouble or discouragement or opposition, you can go and leave right now because this message is not for you. But if you're among the 100% of society who does experience those things, then this message is for you. And I think that we would do well, because we all experience big battles in our life, because we experience opposition, discouragement, and disgrace at times, we would do very well to seek out what is the biblical perspective of how we respond to those things. So I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. I want to give a little bit of background of where we've been so far over the last few weeks because if you don't understand where we've been and where we've come from, you're going to really struggle to understand what's going on right here. So Nehemiah is a man who lived about 2,500 years ago. What we see today took place in the year 445 B.C. And Nehemiah was was called a cupbearer, a fairly prestigious position. He was a cupbearer for the king of the Persian Empire. And he also happened to have a Jewish background. And he got word from some people who'd been visiting Jerusalem that Jerusalem was still in ruins, in, in disarray, from when it had been destroyed some 140 years earlier. Now, God was really grabbing Nehemiah's heart and telling Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you need to do something about this. You are my vessel to go there and to help rebuild this city. And it was very evident as Nehemiah took some steps of faith that God was at work in the situation. So Nehemiah took that 900-mile journey to Jerusalem. And, and very soon after he got there, he went out to do a survey of, okay, what, what's the reality of what we are facing here? He looked at the walls, looked at the way the city was broken down, and he developed a plan. And then he mobilized the people of the city. Last week in Nehemiah chapter 3, three we saw that there were some 40 different groups of people around the city working to rebuild the wall. Now you may be wondering, what is the importance of a wall around the city? Because we don't have walls around our cities anymore. Well, a wall around the city serves a similar function as the wall in your house. It helps protect what's inside the house. It helps keep things outside that shouldn't be coming in. A wall in that era was incredibly important for the protection and the well-being of the city. And so Nehemiah was there. He's helping to oversee the rebuilding of the wall. It is quite this effort of teamwork. But as we will see today, this effort is certainly not smooth sailing. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in to Nehemiah chapter 4. Our Father, we recognize that we do live in a world that is full of struggles and strife and suffering and discouragement. I mean, even think about how Jesus said that in this world you will have trouble. Lord, we all have experienced that, and many of us are currently experiencing that right now in our families or in our workplaces or our own personal lives. And I pray that you will help us to see from Scripture and through the, the power of your Holy Spirit working in our hearts this morning how, how we should look at this opposition and challenge that we face and how we should respond to it in a way that honors you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the course of our time this morning, we're going to go through almost all of Nehemiah chapter 4. But I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 3. Nehemiah writes that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall... He became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those Jews doing? Will they rebuild the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, uh, who was by his side, said, what they are building, well... 
If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. So we see here that the opposition is beginning to escalate against the rebuilding of this wall. See these two men, Sanballat and, and Tobiah, essentially they are two bullies. And, and like I said, the, 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 the opposition is beginning to escalate here. This isn't the first time we've heard of these two men through the book of Nehemiah. In the past, when they heard about the rebuilding of the wall, they began to get a little disgruntled and upset. They confronted Nehemiah at one point, but here we see that this opposition is escalating to another level. Now you may be wondering, okay, these are two guys who have strange names. I've never heard of them. Who are they? I think that's a great question. Well, Sanballat, we know that from a couple decades later, from sources outside of Scripture, we know that he was a governor of a region called Samaria, which was just to the north of where Jerusalem was. And we don't know at this precise time if he was governor at that point or if he was simply an up-and-coming political leader. But that's, that's who he was. I mean, he was someone who was up-and-coming in Samaria or already the governor. And then Tobiah most likely is one of the government um, officials who's associated with Sanballat. And so we see these two men, and they are mocking the builders. I mean, they're sitting here saying, um, what are those feeble Jews doing? I mean, do they really think they can rebuild that wall? I mean, look, that thing's so weak, they don't know what they're doing. Even if a fox went up there and started to crawl around the, on the wall, it would fall down because, I mean, they can't do this. I mean, it reminds me of two immature 10th graders leaning up against their locker in the hallway just making fun of all the people who are walking by, looking at, hey, can you believe what he's wearing? Hey, look at him over there. And I mean, that's what it reminds me of, honestly. But we know from experience, I mean, from my experience, probably from yours as well, that it hurts when people begin to, to be bullies, say bad things about you. I remember back when I was in seventh grade, um, there were these two new boys who moved to our school, and they seemed to make it their personal mission over the course of a couple months to make my life miserable, at least in gym class. Now, thankfully, I did have some friends on the football team um, who definitely stuck up for me really well, but it didn't make life easy. I mean, those two guys, I, I didn't exactly enjoy the time in gym class, especially the locker room during that time, because they were bullies. Thankfully, they moved on pretty quickly after that. But we know that it is not fun when people are making fun of us and bullying us. And the reality is that bullying does not stop simply when you get out of high school. I've seen bullies of pretty much all ages, even into their 60s or 70s. People who have a strong opinion and they're willing to throw their weight around to get their way done. They don't care who they hurt in the process. They're bullies. And we see here that these two men are bullies as well. And so what is Nehemiah's response to this bullying, to, to this, uh, this questioning and stuff? It's to pray. Now you may be thinking, well, that's, that's nice. Yeah, we should definitely pray. That's kind of the, the stereotypical Christian answer of it's kind of trite, kind of, um, kind of nice. Um, but we need to recognize that when we look at Nehemiah's prayer here, there's nothing quaint and nothing nice about what he prays. Listen to what he says. Hear us, O our God. For we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. I mean, not exactly kind words there, are they? I mean, there's, there's a lot of anger there. And I, I think we could talk about, okay, 
is it right or not for Nehemiah to have so much anger and so much apparent unforgiveness in his heart towards these men? But I think there are a couple of important points that we need to make here. And one of them is that at least Nehemiah is going to God with these issues rather than going and striking out and attacking these men who are ridiculing him. I mean, that's a sign of wisdom and a sign of faith right there. And also we need to recognize that this type of prayer of, of calling down curses on someone is not unprecedented in Scripture. In the book of Psalms, there's a category of Psalms called the imprecatory Psalms, which that may seem like a strange word, but simply what it means is Psalms of cursing. And compared to this, some of those Psalms are pretty severe in terms of the types of curses they call down on people. I mean, it's, it's almost kind of embarrassing when you read stuff like that. You're like, is that really in Scripture? But it's there. And I, I have a significant degree of respect for these types of prayers because they are genuine, because they acknowledge the, the gravity and the pain caused uh, when you're angry at what someone has done or said to you, that it shouldn't be done or said. Because, I mean, what do you do when you're angry? I mean, we've all experienced that time probably when our blood begins to boil or when, when someone does or says something that shouldn't be done or said and we're just so upset we want to punch a hole in the wall or, or go out and punch someone's lights out or something. I mean, what do you do in those times? Well, I think the beauty of, of what Nehemiah is doing here and what the imprecatory Psalms are doing is they are taking it back to God and laying it at his feet rather than taking justice and vengeance into our own hands. Listen to what Paul says over in Romans chapter 12. This is a great comfort to me in times when, when I'm really angry about something. Um, he says, Romans chapter 12, verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we see here, Paul is saying, don't repay evil for evil. Do what is good. Live at peace with others. And when you are wronged, you, you don't just dismiss it and say, well, they're just having a bad day. Um, I mean, that's hard to do when you are really angry with someone, isn't it? We are called to forgive. But in those times, you may not feel like forgiving. But in those times, take your hurt, take your anger, lay it before God. Because he is the judge. We aren't. And he is the one who will make sure that justice is done if it needs to be done. If there needs to be wrath poured out somewhere, Paul is saying, God's the one who can do that. And he will take care of that. We need to just release it to him. I think of Jesus and his example. I mean, Jesus obviously went through a lot of challenges and a lot of ridicule in his life. He didn't just die. He wasn't just on a cross. I mean, that, that's bad enough to be crucified, to undergo that physical pain, but also the spiritual pain to be separated from God as he is enduring the wrath that we deserve for our sins. But listen to the ridicule he suffered on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 41 says that the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked Jesus. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from that cross, and we will believe him. Let him, or he trusts in God. Let, let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with Jesus also heaped insults on him. 
So we see that just as the builders of this wall were undergoing um, opposition and insults from others, so was Jesus. Now, one of Jesus' followers named Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, what Jesus' response was here. It says that when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So God, or Jesus laid this at God's feet, saying, God, you are the judge. I'm not going to retaliate here. I'm not going to take vengeance into my own hands. I'm going to let you take care of this for me. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here, and that's what we need to do as well when we face situations in which we feel like we have been hurt or opposed unjustly. That we need to lay it at God's feet. Through the course of today's message, I'm going to share a few principles that we can apply in our lives when we're facing discouragement or opposition. And one of the principles is to surrender the situation to God. Just say, God, this is hard. God, I don't like this. God, this stinks. God, this is what I want to do to those people. But I'm going to lay it at your feet. I'm going to let you take care of this. I'm going to surrender it to you. One practical piece of, of advice is that if you're angry at someone, stay away from email and Facebook and Twitter. I can't tell you how many times I've seen stuff come through on my email of someone who's upset with me or with someone else or come through on Facebook for the whole world to see and you can't take that back. Yeah, you can delete it from Facebook. I've seen that happen if someone go out and then a couple hours later they realize, hey, I shouldn't have put that out there so they delete it. But the impression on those who saw it is still there. You need to surrender it to God first and let him take care of the situation. Now let's come back to our story here. Nehemiah has just prayed. He's surrendered this to God. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. So they surrendered it to God, and they continued to commit themselves to building this wall. It's, it's built up to half its height at this point. Uh, total height of the wall is 15 to 20 feet, so it's about halfway there. And it's really cool to see the people are working with all their heart. I mean, this is beautiful to think about the teamwork that was going on there. What it would be like to look around that city and just see people out there dedicating themselves to building the wall. I imagine that Nehemiah was incredibly proud of what was taking place there. Proud in a healthy way, not pr proud in a kind of, I'm, I'm standing up on my own against God type of way, but proud in a healthy way, kind of like parents are proud of their children. I, I think about for myself, um, just with the people, everyone here. Um, I'm proud of being a part of Freedom's Church, and I'm proud of, of the people of Freedom's Church, especially when I see people taking steps of faith that perhaps are out of their comfort zone, but they, that they know God's calling them to do. I was proud of Henry when he stood up here and shared about what God had done in his life. I know yesterday, I know that it's intimidating for Henry uh, to stand up in front of a group, but I was proud of him. I mean, in a, in a kind of healthy, brotherly way of being proud. I was proud of, I'm proud of people when they um, go out and share the gospel with someone. Maybe it's intimidating, but they do it. I'm proud of us as a church family when we gather together for forever families, and I just see us standing in the gap for orphans around the world who don't have a voice. I'm proud of, of the people here when I see even people serving behind the scenes in ways that we may never see, most people don't see, but I'm proud of being a part of a people like that. I mean, as, as a leader, as a pastor, I mean, I'm proud of, of what I see God doing in our midst. And I imagine that for Nehemiah, it was very similar. As he's looking around and seeing people work with all their heart, 
I imagine he's very proud of what he sees in a healthy sense of this, sense, this word of pride. And I imagine that's also why it broke his heart so much to have this opposition coming against these people who are working so hard, dedicating themselves to God's work. And then you have people like Sanballat and Tobiah, these bullies, trying to stop it. Now let's move on to see what happens next. Verses 7 through 9, it says, When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs of, of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and, and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But, he pray, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet that threat. So we see here that this is taking place over the course of the next several weeks, that, that these people have made threats, but they also notice that the people of Jerusalem are continuing to rebuild this wall, and it makes them more and more mad. And we see now that there's opposition coming from all sides of Jerusalem. From the north, you have Sanballat and Tobiah from that region of Samaria. And then from the, from the south, you have the Arabs. That was a province of the Persian Empire. The Arabs were to the south of Jerusalem. They, they don't like what's going on there, so they're coming against Jerusalem. From the east, you have the Ammonites. And, and the direct neighbors to the west of Jerusalem were the people of Ashdod. And they're all coming together, coming to fight violently against the people of Jerusalem to stop the building of the wall. And you may be wondering, why are they so concerned about this? Why do they want to give everything they have to stopping the rebuilding of the wall? Well, let me share an illustration uh, that may strike a little closer to home than rebuilding a wall. I, I imagine that many of you are probably Packers fans. And imagine if you're a Packers fan. If you aren't a Packers fan, put yourself in the shoes of a Packers fan. Um, imagine that after the Super Bowl is done tonight... Somehow over the course of the next few weeks, the Minnesota Vikings managed to acquire Peyton Manning as their quarterback and acquire the entire Seattle Seahawks defense as the Vikings' new defense. Now, realistically, it's not possible. Imagine how you would feel as a Packers fan. You'd probably feel a bit concerned, wouldn't you? I mean, because here you have, uh, what, a five-time MVP quarterback and the best defense in the league all on one of your arch-rival teams. And you know what? Vikings, they've kind of been up and down for a few years, more down than up. They, I mean, yeah, it's always rough when the, tough when the Packers play them, but even still, I mean, Packers always have had a pretty decent chance of beating them for at least the last few years. But you know that from now on, with Manning as quarterback and with the Seahawks defense, it's going to be an incredibly rough game every time the Packers play the Vikings. Because the Vikings, and the Packers didn't necessarily get any weaker the Vikings got a ton stronger. And it's the same type of thing for all these neighbors around Jerusalem that, that in the past, for the last 140 years, Jerusalem has been very weak. They posed no threat. You know what? If someone wanted to come through and ransack them, they could. If someone wanted to, to force them to pay taxes to them, they could. But now that Jerusalem is having the wall rebuilt for protection, and now that the people are teaming together and growing stronger, Jerusalem poses a much bigger threat. No one can just run over them anymore. And so that is the main reason why all these neighbors are so concerned about what's taking place there and why they're seeking to oppose them even violently. Now let's see what happens next. Uh, verse 10. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, 
Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So we see that the people are beginning to get discouraged. I mean, these threats have been coming for weeks at a time, and they hear these threats. They're not just words anymore. They're threats of violence. People are worried they're going to be killed in the process. And they're looking at the work they've done on the wall. Yes, they've gotten a lot of good work done. But man, there's still so much to go. There's still, still so much rubble around. And they're getting discouraged. You know what? It's not a big deal if, if one or two people get discouraged. But what is happening here is that the people who are getting discouraged are discouraging the other people. And discouragement's going very quickly through the entire city. And so it's important that Nehemiah responds. And we need to recognize that when we get discouraged, it shouldn't surprise us. Because discouragement and opposition are inevitable in this broken world. I mean, I think there's a tendency to think, well, if I'm really following God, if I'm really committed to him, if I'm really living a holy life, if I'm really in the center of his, of his will, then surely I will be exempt from the trials of this life. Surely then things will be a little bit easier. But we look at Nehemiah. Certainly wasn't the case for him. I mean, he was right in the center of God's will here, doing God's work, building up God's people. But he certainly faced challenges. But for him, he recognized, you know what? This opposition is something that shouldn't catch me by surprise. It's to be expected. It's the same for us, that we shouldn't be caught by surprise when we face opposition or discouragement because we have enemies that are working against us. Biblically, we have three specific enemies that work against us. The world, meaning the value systems of this world, perhaps even governmental structures that, are, that at times are set up against the purposes of God. The flesh, our, our sinful nature is another enemy that we have that, you know what? We all have this sinful nature, and when we come to faith in Christ, uh, we no longer have to bear the penalty for that sinful nature. We are free of condemnation then. And we have been freed from the slavery to that sinful nature. But even still, while we're on this earth, that sinful nature still is living inside of us. And it wells up. And at times, we can become our own worst enemy in trying to follow Christ and fulfill his purposes for building his kingdom. Because our flesh, our sinful nature, wells up and diverts our course from where God's calling us. And then we have the enemy of the devil. Satan is real. And the spiritual forces of darkness are real. And they oppose what God is doing in this world. So when we face opposition as a church, it shouldn't surprise us if we're seeking to build up the kingdom of God. And for Nehemiah, when I look at this opposition he's facing, I fully believe that this opposition is being empowered and guided by literal spiritual forces of darkness. Demons, maybe Satan himself, is opposing what's going on here through people like Sanballat and Tobiah and these others. So we have enemies uh, who are working against us, and the people are beginning to get discouraged here. It's important that when we feel discouragement and opposition, that we then take faith-filled action and faith-fueled action in what we are doing. There are a couple things that we may be tempted to do when we face discouragement and opposition that are not healthy. One of the things we may be tempted to do is just to throw in the towel and to give up and say, you know what? It's just too hard. It's not worth it. Maybe this wasn't God's will. I'm just going to give up. That is not what our first reaction should be if we face opposition or discouragement. A second thing that we should not do on the opposite end of the spectrum 
is don't simply just push ahead as if nothing happened. See, I think there's a temptation for some of us, especially if you're pretty strong-willed or if you are very convinced that what you're doing is right, that you just push right on ahead. You don't care at all about any criticism you get. You don't care about what other people think. You don't care about anything. You're just going to push right on ahead. And what ends up happening in the process is a lot of people get hurt. Even those close to you can get burned or disillusioned. And you may end up in a spot that you wish that you never ended up in. Because many times when we are facing opposition or criticism or discouragement, it can be a wake-up call that God wants to use in our lives to help us to examine ourselves and ask, oh, hey, do we need a recalibration here? Do we need to examine some sort of sin issue in our lives or some different perspective that we need to adopt? And if we just blow right on the head, we're going to miss what God wants to, to do in our lives and to teach us. So what we need to do, this is another principle in these hard times, is to discern what God wants us to learn, and then he wants us to do it. He wants us to ask God, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me here? What can I learn? What, what, do I need a recalibration of direction? And then once we have an understanding of what God is trying to teach us here, then do something about it. Now, I want to go through this passage uh, here before us, verses 13 through 20, and see how Nehemiah responded. Um, and then from that response, then um, make some applications for us. But it's really interesting as we look at this passage to look at the, the back and forth interplay between the action on one hand and faith on the other hand. We're talking about faith-fueled action here. So beginning in verse 13, Nehemiah 4, Nehemiah's response is that, Therefore I stationed some people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. So we see Nehemiah is taking some pretty quick action just to help protect the city from immediate attack. So he's taking action there. But he said, After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. So Nehemiah now, he's taking a bit of a step back after some initial precautions. He's analyzing, okay, what's going on here? What does God want us to do here? And one of the things that he's sensing is that God wants to remind Nehemiah and the rest of the people that God is faithful and that God is powerful, that God is an awesome and a holy God. And that that should give them faith to move forward. And, and so we see that they do. Um, he also calls them not just to faith in God, but also to action. He says, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Saying, okay, don't just pray about this. Don't just think about God. You actually need to act as well. <clears throat> now picking up in verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. So what we see right here is faith in action. Earlier they were discouraged. Earlier they were uh, afraid of working on the wall. But now that they've renewed their faith in God and that he is going to protect them and guide them, they are returning to their work to continue to rebuild the wall. So it's faith in action. Next we see a significant portion of action. It says, verse 16, From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The, the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders 
wore his sword at his side while, while he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I, uh, Nehemiah speaking here, then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. So, so we see that Nehemiah is taking some very practical action steps in order to ensure the safety of the, of the workers, the well-being of the city, to ensure the work is going on. So we have people who are, who are bearing swords to protect the people from attack. We have people who are continuing to work. Even the workers are still carrying swords with them. So he's taking this faith-fueled action that God's going to protect us here, but we also need to step up and fight if we need to. And finally, end of verse 20, he says our God will fight for us. It's a rallying cry of faith. It's a rally cry that's come down through Israel's history, stemming back from, from Exodus chapter 14. You see, when, when Israel uh, was led out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt, I mean, it was, it was a great time of rejoicing. God was using Moses because they'd been enslaved. Now they're coming out of Egypt. But they suddenly came between a sea, kind of a rock and a hard place, the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's army on the, behind them. They didn't know what they were going to do. But Moses said to them, don't be afraid. Our God will fight for us. And with that, God parted the Red Sea and the Israelites escaped the Pharaoh's army. Our God will fight for us. And this is the phrase that was used down throughout Israel's history. And Nehemiah is employing it again here to recall from the past God's faithfulness so they can, can apply that to the present to help them maintain that faith in God that he will fight for us. So I want to call to our minds two more principles that we can apply in times that we are facing discouragement and opposition. One thing is to remember God's grace and faithfulness. To intentionally focus our eyes back on him, remembering, you know what? He will never leave us and never forsake us. And also to take the action that needs to be taken. Take the action that needs to be taken. You know what? It's a whole lot easier to steer a car that is moving than to steer a car that's sitting still, isn't it? And so I think for us, it's a whole lot easier for God to guide us when we are actually taking um, prayerful, faith-filled steps forward, continuing to maintain communication with Him. But, but then He can turn us. He can recalibrate our direction. And so for us, there comes a time, like if we're looking for a new job, that we aren't just praying, God, please open the door for me. But they were also taking action. We're putting our resume out there. We're fine-tuning our interview skills. We're, we're making contacts. That if we are praying for someone to come to know Christ, that we may at some point need to take action to be an answer to our own prayer to share the gospel with them. That if we are praying for reconciliation with someone that we've been estranged from for a while, that we may need to take faith-fueled action to actually sit down and have a humble face-to-face -face conversation with them seeking reconciliation. There are many other applications as well, but there are times where we need to take the action that needs to be taken. Now, I want to come back to this passage once more, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 21, just to see what happens next. It says, So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. So we see here that the work is continuing. Yes, there is discouragement. Yes, there is opposition. Yes, the people want to throw in the towel and give up. But they pressed on because they kept their eyes on God. They surrendered the situation to him and, and they worked together 
and they took the action that needed to be taken, but they kept moving forward. Now, I think about this, this, this topic we're talking about applies not just to us as individuals when we face hardship and challenges, but it applies to us as a church as well. If we really want to stand up for Christ, there are going to be people who don't like that. There are going to be people, there are people in our society who don't like Jesus, who don't like biblical values, and if we stand up for these things, they will oppose us indirectly or sometimes directly. And for us, as personally, there will be times where we don't feel like we want to stand up for the kingdom of God, where it's hard to be a Christian, where it's easier to just kind of blend in. In those times, we need to remember that Jesus is actively at work right now in the world to build his church. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we need to remember that, that we shouldn't be surprised if there's opposition or discouragement but that we need to press on. And maybe you're at a point in your life right now where you're looking at maybe your life as a whole or at least some part of it, and you feel like, you know what? I've given up there. I just want, I, I want to throw in the towel. I've fallen, and I really don't even feel like getting back up. Maybe you're looking at your life, and you're like, I kind of like my cozy chair. I, I, I know I should step out and try to seek to build the kingdom of God, to share the gospel with others, but that sounds a little bit too hard. Let me offer us a little encouragement uh, from about 100 years ago, Theodore Roosevelt, a former U.S. president. This is from a speech that he gave. Theodore Roosevelt writes, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But the credit goes to the one who actually does strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows the end, in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst... If he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. My prayer is that we would be men and women who aren't just sitting in the comfort of our chairs or our houses, who aren't just laying on the ground because we've been beaten down or discouraged and don't feel like we want to get back up and try again, but that we will hear the voice of God calling us, saying, you know what? Get back up. I will give you the energy and the strength and the courage that you need, and I want to make an impact in you and through you for my sake. My prayer is that we would be those people. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you are gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. We thank you that when we are weary, we can come to you because you never grow tired or weary, Lord. And I pray that you will help us, Lord, to persevere forward, even in, the, in those places where we feel opposition or discouragement or heartache. May we persevere on for the sake of your glory. And Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion, we pray that you will help us to remember what Christ has gone through on our behalf. He went through great suffering, 
great trials, but he persevered to win the prize. Lord, I pray that we will do the same. And now as we bring back to you our tithes and our offerings, what you've entrusted to us, Lord, I pray that you will use these finances to spread your kingdom throughout this world in Jesus' name. Amen.